0: The lens of ufology through UFO periodicals is a strange sight to behold in the late 70s and early 80s. To survey them is to find odd stories of close encounters from across the globe, and a fuller picture of what too often feels like an American phenomenon. In them, you can find stories from behind the Iron Curtain, Argentina, Puerto Rico, and a myriad of other countries. Despite having a nuanced look at UFO cases from around the world, I've always felt estranged from Canada's more obscure cases, like an older brother with an age gap so large that I know nothing about them. It is with this attitude that I dove into the periodicals of the day, looking for some of Canada's most obscure UFO cases. You will find no mention of Plasbon Adventure, Guardian, or Falcon Lake. Instead, I will treat you all to a trio of the strange and mysterious to come from Canada's skies. My name is Rob Christofferson, and welcome to the Our Strange Skies podcast.
1: I wish you could stay Because I know I a lot to say I will choose
0: For Sandy Nudson, her UFO sighting became a frustrating experience. November 11, 1978 was a very cold night. There was a blanket of fresh snow on the ground near Bragg Creek in Alberta. Kim and Sandy Nudson, along with their friends Henry Zwochik and Geraldine Wright, made plans to attend a party that night. Each couple drove their own vehicles, and it didn't take long to get lost on the back roads as they were unfamiliar with them. This disorientation led them down a dead-end path, where the deep snow made it difficult to turn around. Henry and Geraldine managed to turn back, but soon found their car stuck in the snow. Kim and Sandy positioned their car directly behind them, prepared to push them out if need be. At first they struggled to get the car out by hand, and it was then that Sandy noticed a light in the sky coming in their direction. It was a slow light, Quote, and I thought immediately that it looked like a giant hovercraft, the way it was moving, and I turned to the fellow who was with us, and I asked him what it was as it came closer. And he looked at it, and he said, "Oh, it's just a UFO, Sandy," End quote." She became worried as time went on, and increasingly frustrated with those around her. They seemed to be uninterested with the approaching object. Quote, "I made them look at this vehicle. At this point, it was very close, probably. I'm not very good at distances, but I'd say it was from here, where I'm sitting, to out on the road. According to the investigator's tape measure, that was approximately 90 feet. The object was large, 150 feet long, and looked to be shaped like a large building with structures on it that reminded Sandy of a hovercraft. Following hypnotic regression, she described a pair of tail fins on which two figures would appear. A number of large rectangular windows could be seen, illuminated from the inside by a yellowish-white light. Despite being so close now, Sandy's companions were still uninterested. She kept trying to make them look at it, until the object just went away, slowly. "'All right, Sandy,' Henry responded. "'We've looked at your UFO.' Now, can we please go and get these cars out of the snow? The two couples arrived at the party later than they wanted to. For Sandy, she couldn't focus on it. During a hayride, she was focused on the skies, desperately searching for the object with no luck. Quote, "...didn't we see a UFO tonight?" Sandy asked her husband. It felt as if the details were slipping from her mind, and she was doing anything to jog her memory. Yeah, yeah we did her husband responded, but it was nothing. Sandy then turned to her friends and asked the same thing, receiving a similar response. The next day, it was all she could talk about. She asked her husband if he noticed anything strange about the object that they had seen, and his response was a curious one. Yes, there were people on it. There was music. It was almost like they were having a party. There was wine and glasses the shape of wine glasses, and almost the sound of the tinkling of wine glasses, too. This statement would lead Sandy to try regressive hypnosis, leading to a number of details and impressions of the sighting. She noted how the music that they heard sounded like big band music, but that the guests weren't dancing and didn't seem to be having any fun. She felt claustrophobic as the object drew closer, There were figures that watched in silhouette. They appeared to be similar to us, with two arms and legs. There was one figure in the front of the object that Sandy called the Captain, though she didn't know how she knew that. If UFO reports from Canada are rare, then abduction reports are even rarer. According to an article concerning the case you're about to hear, In 1979, only four abduction cases had been reported. Over the course of three nights in August 1979, multiple UFOs were seen and two abductions were reported in eastern Toronto. It began on August 2nd in a field where two bright lights were seen hovering over high-tension power lines. Sarah Hines spotted the object and notified two of her friends, who took off for the field immediately. As they approached, the objects immediately departed, one to the south and the other to the north. One of the lights was seen by Kathy's father, one of the girls that approached the object, at around 9.50 p.m. as they were leaving. Two minutes later, Kathy witnessed a pair of arrowhead-shaped objects moving backwards from the northwest. At 9.53 Sarah and her third friend Jackie observed a black cigar-shaped object with white lights that ran around it, and a green light at one end. Directly behind it was an arrowhead-shaped object at a low elevation in the sky, a sound like a generator followed behind them. The potpourri of sightings continued two minutes later at 9.55 p.m. when an oval-shaped object shrouded in green mist approached a nearby school two blocks away from Sarah's home. The object was 12 to 15 feet in diameter, six feet tall, and had four legs on the bottom of it. A group of seven teenagers, many joined by their parents, observed the objects in the sky for a number of minutes before they all disappeared from sight at around 10.05 p.m. One girl named Jody claimed that when she approached the school where the object had landed, she felt paralyzed and began to cry. Eastern Toronto was not the only place where these objects appeared. Similar craft were spotted at around 11 p.m. that night over northwestern Kansas and southwestern Nebraska, even making the local papers. The next night, at 9.50 p.m., the same people, with the addition of Kathy's mother, a boy named Bill McMillan, and Jackie's brother Ernie, went to the same field opposite the school where a football-sized oval object hovered approximately 300 feet in the air. The flat object was a dark color with checkered patterns across the bottom and three large fans, 50 feet in diameter each. The object hovered for a bit before it turned over slowly, rising up and heading south at a very slow speed. At 10 p.m., Bill and Ernie observed two large arrowhead-shaped objects at about 500 feet elevation north of the field. One of the objects appeared to explode silently, breaking off into a number of pieces. It was around this time that Sarah had an urge to go alone into an adjacent field three-quarters of a mile to the northeast. She walked as if in a trance until she approached four bright lights hovering 500 feet in the air, at around 10.10 p.m. She returned home a short while later and slept for 12 hours. Normally a 4-5 to hour sleeper, this was odd for her, as she had slept for the same amount of time the night before. At 10.30 that night, Kathy reported her sighting to the Canadian UFO Research Network, or QFORN, who interviewed her that night alongside her mother Alice. As if on cue, the objects returned on the night of August 4th at 9.50 p.m. Joined by Jackie's father this time, the teens set out for the field. Again, an arrowhead-shaped object appeared, which was also seen by Jackie's mother, who happened to be walking a few blocks away. Two of these objects hovered for about two minutes over the field, at 500 feet elevation, before disappearing in a flash. At the same time that this occurred, Sarah again felt the urge to walk northeast of the field. All sound seemed to drop away as she crossed a carless road. She reached the field at around 10.05 p.m., where an arrowhead-shaped object was waiting for her. Settled just a few feet above the tall grass, she approached the object, where four shadow-like figures emerged and hovered in a semicircular two feet above the ground. These figures were short, about four feet tall, football-shaped, one and a half feet wide and less than an inch thick. Sarah stared at these beings for a minute or two before passing out. Memories following this time became very vague. She recalled being on board the UFO and observing a great portion of its interior. There was a man in a blue suit walking a dog, too. In her next conscious memory, Sarah awoke in the field at 10.20 p.m., stretched out on the ground 15 feet away from where the object had been. At home, she slept for another 12 hours. The next morning, she noticed that her face was an orange-red color. The index finger of her right hand had a pinprick marking on it, and there was an eighth-inch diameter elongated red scrape mark, also with a pinprick mark in the center of it at the base of her thumb. These marks were gone within five days. Her pupils were also dilated when she came home that night, though they were normal the next morning. Sarah met with UFO investigator Joseph Muscat on August 5th, and together with Sarah's brother Jay, they set out into the field where she was brought on board the UFO. They found a triangular area of depressed grass and noted it was gray in color as if the chlorophyll was removed from it. In the area where Sarah claimed she came to consciousness, they found a nickel and a penny. She instantly remembered that on the day of the abduction, she had 11 cents in her pocket, but when she came home, there was only a nickel. The place where the change was found was 15 feet away from where the burnt grass was. Radiation readings taken by members of QFORN were found to be 1.6 to 1.7 times higher than normal background. In October of 1979, Sarah underwent regressive hypnosis to learn about her time on board the UFO. She recalled being taken on board through a wall. The interior was brightly lit and uniformed throughout, and Sarah could detect an odor that reminded her of chicken— It's unclear whether this is cooked chicken or living chicken, but um, yeah, it's just an interesting detail there. Whenever she touched anything with her hand, it would go right through it, except for a cat that they had on board. The occupants told her that they had been growing the cat and that they would be releasing it on Earth soon. Weird. There were seven shadowy creatures on the craft that she could see through. They were long and ovular, like long misshapen footballs, and each of them was different. They were crystalline in appearance, standing four feet tall. They were all different colors, and they spoke to Sarah telepathically, claiming that they took her to study humans, to see what they were made of. They had been on Earth before, and would return again when she reached the age of 25. In a second session, Sarah described her examination. They put an instrument in her mouth, and a light was placed on her thumb and index finger, the purpose of which was to extract blood painlessly. A machine was placed on her head to read her thoughts and general knowledge. There was an ordinary English-speaking human man on board the craft there to be tested himself. She couldn't remember his name, only that it began with the letter A. He looked to be in his early 40s and didn't seem to mind being there. He asked the creatures questions, and they didn't mind answering them. Finally, they took Sarah out of the craft through a hole in the wall. They put her back to sleep and placed her on the ground. On October 11th, Sarah received a visit from a strange man while at school. She was sitting with her friends at lunchtime when a, quote, funny man who was tall, skinny, and wearing funny-looking shoes approached her. The complexion of the man was startling as he looked dead with a grin on his face. He requested that she move away from her friends and, when she was alone, immediately started to ask her strange questions. He wanted to know everything about her friends. Sarah believed that he wanted to kill them, and he wanted to know everything that happened on board the UFO. If she didn't tell him everything, she knew. The man had a number of partners and that they would get to her. Fearing for the safety of herself and her friends, she told him everything, and when he was satisfied with the answers he received, he left. Sarah never felt any fear during her experience. She had an interest in the occult and UFOs, and even claimed to have UFO sightings before the August events. Strangely enough, Sarah's case is not the only men in black account to come from Canada. In 1981, Grant Breland was only a high school student when he had a remarkable sighting of a UFO in Victoria, British Columbia. Grant was an extremely bright kid, 16 years of age. He even had his own business, JR Security, where he employed a number of friends to assist law enforcement. You know, the kind of... Narc, that uh, when he sees something going down on the street, you know he's he's not Phoenix Jones. You're not Phoenix Jones, dude. On Friday night, October second, nineteen eighty-one, Grant's eldest sister had come to visit. The entire family walked out to see her off, and when he casually looked upward at the stars, he noticed one that was much bigger than the others. It was a clear night with many stars in the sky, and this one happened to stand out. Of the few clouds that passed by, it seemed to be at their height. No one else could make out what Grant was seeing. Even a displeased boy on a bicycle had trouble seeing it. Grant normally carried around a CB radio for his security work, and he immediately called out to see if there was anyone on Mount Tolmie, three miles away, as any witness would have a perfect view of the object. A young man, slightly older than Grant, using the initials NB, radioed in to say that he was there and confirmed seeing the strange light in the sky. He described it as, quote, like a star that is about to shoot. Grabbing a pair of nearby binoculars, all he could see now was a big red light. Quote, All I could see now is one big red light, and it's pointing right at me, end quote. Grant ran into his house to grab a camera, and pointing it up at a 45-degree angle, he could clearly see now that it was not a star. It looked like an inverted object, because the dome was underneath. In the center of the UFO, there was a small diamond-shaped red light that kept moving back and forth along the width of the object, and then down to the bottom of the dome and around, up the invisible side of the craft, and finally up over the top edge, and down again in front, in continual circular motion. Each time this little red light reached the center of the object, it halted for a brief instant before resuming its gyrations. At the 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 9 o'clock positions around the object, and at some distance from it, Grant saw four fairly large white lights, a good deal bigger than the red light, but smaller than the main object. These remained at constant distance from the craft. When the latter moved, they moved with it, as though attached to it by an invisible link. On these four white lights that Grant described as circular, he thought he saw many dark dots, which he took to be, possibly, windows. These are shown, arranged in a pattern, on the accompanying diagram of the UFO, which I will be posting on social media. It will also be noticed that the central portions of these four lights displayed no dots. The latter were clustered at both ends of each circular light, rather than in the middle. From another craft, there were many yellow beams of light aimed towards each of these four lights. Nowhere else were such yellow beams in evidence. Grant then took a picture, but it has not yet been developed. I don't know if this picture exists, but... Apparently, he took one. The craft then started to move slowly sideways to the left and to the right, then slowly upwards and downwards, just like the hand motions of a priest making the sign of the cross. The four large white lights kept at the same distance from the central object, the small red light continuing its regular movement left and right, and then down, over, up, and down again, all around the large craft. However, at one point, the small red light stopped for two seconds in the center and beamed a red light directly at Grant's eyes. Then it resumed its movements. At 9.59 p.m., he looked at his wristwatch, then back to the UFO, and at precisely 10 p.m., everything was switched off like an electric light bulb being extinguished. Oddly enough, seven hours after this incident, in the early morning of October 3rd, a very strange electrical storm occurred in the area. Thunderstorms are extremely rare, and while it only amounted to one tremendous thunderclap, it was followed by heavy rainfall. The two boys exchanged addresses over their CBs and made plans to meet up the next day. And by Grant's front door, they discussed what they had seen the night before. Both were experiencing very bad headaches, and aspirin didn't seem to be helping. NB returned to Grant's house on the 4th of October and took him around the block to show off his new radio. Grant was more than happy to return home as NB seemed to be a bit reckless on the road and swearing constantly. He wasn't sure if this was caused by the UFO or just a normal thing for him. Monday the 5th was a normal day for Grant. He left school at 3:15 in the afternoon and headed for Kmart to pick up a radio part he had ordered from the radio shack inside. The part had not arrived by the time he got there, so he headed to the vestibule to meet his friend Len. The normally bustling entrance was eerily quiet when he reached Len's sister on the phone. She informed him that Len had just broken his arm and wouldn't be meeting him. On the turnaround, Grant was confronted by two very odd men, standing extremely close together. Quote, At first he thought they might be from the police, but their appearance was so strangely non-human that he became very frightened. Another thing that caused him fear was the, at the moment, total absence of people passing through the vestibule while he was with those men. He distinctly remembered having seen very many people walking about inside the store and also the outside sidewalk since all the doors are transparent. The men stood motionless, arms and legs stiff and to attention. He reports that they were in extremely dark blue, almost black. This was the color of their suits, their shirts, and their shoes. They wore no ties, and their shirts were buttoned up at the neck, although he saw no sign of buttons either on the shirts or on the jackets. The latter were longer than windbreakers, yet shorter than lounge suit jackets, and they were wide open. No trouser belts were visible. He had the impression that they lacked fingernails. How do you have the impression that anybody lacks fingernails? Their lips were not reddish, but were exactly the same color as their skin, which was suntanned. Quote, Like after a holiday in Hawaii. End quote. Their eyes were very dark and peculiar, with no point of light reflection on them. Just matte, not glossy. Their faces were entirely devoid of expression, and so were their voices. They never blinked or moved. They wore no hats, and their hair was black, or possibly extremely dark brown, et in crop, the hair covering only the upper half of their foreheads. They seemed to have eyelashes, but no eyebrows at all. The number one man kept his mouth perpetually half open, like a rectangle, whereas the mouth of number two was somewhat more normal. Both had regular and perfect teeth. They did not move their lips at all when they spoke, and they did not address him by his name. End quote. The voice of number one was stiff and monotone, like that of a robot. He asked Grant his name, but the boy refused to give it to him, and this man never spoke again. The second asked him where he lived, followed by what his number was. Grant again refused, and I don't know if he knows what his number is anyway, but they remained there for five more seconds before they turned their heels in a mechanical and uniform way and left through the main door. Grant followed them closely for a while. The still life that had once been a factor in the vestibule followed him outside, There were no moving cars, only the rain above. The men continued walking through a fence into a ploughed field. Grant heard his name called three times, though he could not see who was calling him, only that there was no one in the parking lot. After turning around for the third time to find the person, the men disappeared in the middle of the muddy field. Grant immediately ran out there, but found no footprints from the strange men anywhere. He returned home, arriving around 5 p.m. The next morning, while in the shower, he discovered some half-centimeter welts on his right thigh. He'd had a nightmare the night before, too. Making it halfway across the plowed field next to the Kmart, the men in black were waiting for him this time. They grabbed him by the wrists and transported him to a pure white circular room where they proceeded to interrogate him, asking for information about what he had seen. One of the men began scribbling at a nearby desk, but Grant was not forthcoming with any information. They claimed that if he didn't offer up anything, he would be sorry. Grant instead chose to lie about calling Len, saying that he never did. They saw through the lie immediately, and ended the dream by saying, Forget it. Destroy it. Encounters with the men in black would plague Grant's dreams for the next few days. The young entrepreneur would receive a bit of confirmation regarding his encounter with the men in black. On Monday, October 5th, NB claimed that two slender-built men with white hair, very pale and dressed exactly as the two who visited Grant later at Kmart, came into the service station he worked in asking to buy some gas as they seemed to be out. The men acted very strange and N.B. asked their names but they refused to divulge them. Instead, he let them use a gas can for $2.65 for which they paid with a $10 bill. With the mechanical gait, the men left and returned 15 minutes later to bring back the can. Strangely, The can was still full of gas. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Our Strange Skies podcast. If you liked what you heard, please consider leaving us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or any place that you really can. And even if you can't, recommending the podcast to a friend goes a very long way. I have a few announcements here. Uh, To start with, we will be relaunching the Patreon very soon. Our target is August right now. There will be just one tier, $3, which will get you one or two bonus episodes a month, guaranteed. As for the main feed, we're heading into a deep dive of the abduction phenomenon, I will be posting episodes sporadically as I just, I'm just i involved in way too many projects right now, but uh, I'm looking forward to bringing you uh, this in-depth look at an aspect of the phenomenon that I've just been um, endlessly fascinated by since I was a child. I am a part of a couple other projects, if you didn't know, including an X-Files-inspired TTRPG podcast called The Order of Podcasters, I play Myron Tripchin, a very much inspired character of George Nori. Uh, so uh, if that's up your alley, please go check it out. I also have a D&D podcast set in the Forgotten Realms called Rolling Through the Realms. If you think you'd be interested in those, just please check them out. Uh, and if you like them, leave us a rating and review. Share us around. Special thanks to Floats for the use of our brand new theme song, UFO, from the album entitled Not an Album. You can find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Spotify. Additional music is by Blue Dot Sessions, and our logo is designed by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or the skies of Canada. In Grey, we trust.